Welcome to Orange Crest Community Church and OCCathome.com. We are so glad you're here. At OCC, our mission is to invite people to take their next steps with Jesus. And so we pray that through our time together, you're encouraged and challenged to move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Orange Cast Community Church. My name is Josh Delarosa. I'm the senior pastor here at OCC, and and we are in week two of this series of messages that we launched last week on Easter Sunday. It's called the Difference, and and on Easter we celebrated the pinnacle event that is really the foundation of the whole Christian faith. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and so so you have this occurring, and those disciples and many other followers were so convinced of the resurrection and. They just spent their whole entire life and future declaring the message of hope to others. The the message is, hey, your sin can be forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus, made possible through his blood that was shed on a cross. And then we have this promise that, that is available of eternal life that Jesus offers. So that's their message. Jesus offers forgiveness and a new life. And this whole conviction and this message really has caused Christ followers for centuries now to share this message with others. And it's just been passed on from generation to generation to generation. And it has made a huge, really undeniable difference in our world. You know, people didn't just come up with this assignment on their own to share this message. Uh, you know, no one just came up with this story in, in a uh, on a walk. Hey, we, we should start sharing this message. No, it, that's not how this started. The resurrected Jesus, he actually commissioned his followers with these words just before he ascended to heaven where he is now. Look at these words from Acts 1.8. Acts is a book in the New Testament. It's the fifth book in the New Testament, which is the second division in the Bible. And it's a history book that we're going to be in as an anchor for this entire series that we're doing. And so the book of Acts traces the growth, the expansion, and the movement of the whole Christian faith. So look at Jesus' final commissioning words to his disciples in Acts 1.8. He tells his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, those are other regions, and to the ends of the earth. Now this wasn't a figure of speech. This wasn't just a metaphor. Like you're going to be my witnesses and we're going worldwide. You know, it sort of sounds like a hype man. Jesus is just being a hype man here. No, this wasn't just a figure of speech. Sometimes people make these bold statements about themselves and, and, and their influence, but we don't really take them seriously. Like, like here's some examples of that. Like Jack Dawson uh, in Titanic. You know, I'm the king of the world. And he's, he's uh, this is metaphorical, clearly. Or, or young Simba in Lion King, where his father says, you know, all of this that you see will be yours, Simba. These are fun stories. But when Jesus made this sentiment, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, this is far more than just a figure of speech. In fact, this was a confident prediction. Jesus predicted that he would become known to the ends of the earth. And so when he made this statement, I want you to understand this. Jesus had around 500 followers when he said this. Only about 500 people. Now compare that today and the impact of that movement, the Christian movement. 
starting with that that small group of people, only around 500 followers, compare that today to soccer star Cristiano Ronaldo. 490 million followers on Instagram. He is the most followed person on Instagram. Or former President Barack Obama. He's the most followed individual on Twitter. 130 million followers. So go back to Jesus for a moment. Jesus, when he said this, had only around 500 followers. He had no land. He had no office, no political position, no formal military. How did this movement that he's talking about spread like wildfire the way it has and continue to spread and spread and spread with no sign of slowing down around the world? Even for us, Easter is this huge celebration. We celebrate the resurrection year after year since we planted this church in 2007. And the crowd that comes out gets larger and larger and larger each and every year. Actually, I want to show you a recap video of Easter Sunday at OCC. And so take a look at uh, our services last uh, weekend. Now, here we are nearly 2,000 years from this statement Jesus made. And we can document his statement that that we would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. This is the commissioning. Well, 2,000 years later, we can actually document this outrageous claim in history. It's not a great quality video, but I've got a video that, that I want to show that you can sort of track with the expansion of the Christian movement. This is from a Business Insider video. Uh, you might want to jot down Business Insider, an animated map of the spread of Christianity. You can watch this on your own and see it again. Uh, but a couple things uh, you'll notice is they, they only reference the death of Jesus, his crucifixion. They don't reference the resurrection. Uh, but something important about this 
just brief video is you can just see the expansion uh, through the centuries. The timeline is at the bottom. And so from from Jesus's life to present day, you can watch to see the expansion and movement of Christianity. Take a look. Now again, notice the highlight is Jesus' crucifixion. They don't note his resurrection. But but they certainly do show this rapid expansion of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, then into parts of Europe, and into some parts of the Middle East, and into North Africa. But then Islam grows and spreads and it pushes back Christianity until around the age of, of exploration, you see in about the 15th and 16th century, there's this huge expansion effort and missionary movement to the rest of the known world. And it's just sort of mind-boggling when we see this, to see this outrageous claim that Jesus made actually being fulfilled through the lives of his followers over many, many, many centuries. So let's look again at the statement from Acts 1.8. And you will be my witnesses, Jesus commissions them. He says, in Jerusalem, that's the city that they were in, and in all Judea and Samaria, those are the regions. Jerusalem is a city, the capital city in the Judean region. Samaria is the region uh, right above it. And it says, and to the ends of the earth. So if Jesus was crucified in, and there's a little bit of a debate over this, either in AD 33 or AD 30. So if he was crucified er, in, the, er, in the early 30s, uh, then by AD, 50, or AD 47, the disciples had already covered uh, the city of Jerusalem, the, the regions of Judea and Samaria with the gospel message. And so it took somewhere around uh, 15 years approximately for the, the Christians, those earliest followers, to spread the message, to witness in the city of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaritan regions. It's pretty powerful to consider that. And as I mentioned, the book of Acts documents this spread of Christianity. In fact, chapters 1 through 12, the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, the history book 
of the movement and the spread of Christianity and the earliest Christians. Uh, chapters 1 through 12 show the stories of the gospel impacting those those three named regions, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. So you get through those chapters to see that spread. And in 2020, we actually went through those chapters, Acts 1 through 12, in a, in a message series that we called Church Now. And we sort of covered those chapters 1 through 12 of Acts. So what I want to do in this series is I want to trace the expansion towards the end of the earth. From Acts 13 through chapter 17. The, the book of Acts goes further, but we'll be looking in the series at, at those chapters, Acts 13 through 17. I want to highlight some of the specific impacts of Christianity in those cities, in those towns, and those regions. And what we're going to see in this series is how change has come to the world. Change in political environments through leaders, uh, medical aid and compassion, uh, raising the inherent worth of women and children, removing racial barriers, and then just growth uh, of this Christian movement, even in regions that were hostile and are still currently hostile towards Christianity. And so, Let's zero in on Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. And just remember, chapter 13 is this major turning point where it's pushing towards the ends of the earth. Up through chapter 12, it's just this Judean and Samaritan regions. And now, a launch out um, to sea is going to propel the Christian movement out of those regions and towards the Gentile nations to the ends of the earth. So here's what we're going to see. We're going to see the gospel of Jesus Christ pushing away the prevailing darkness in nations. Remember, darkness is a result of sin. Darkness and the possibility for that is is in every land, nation, region, city, because it resides. Sin is something that every human heart wrestles through. It's our default. So darkness is a result of sin. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, this message, is what pushes back and pushes away the prevailing darkness in nations. Take a look at Acts 13 as we get introduced to a missionary team. It reads this, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they were worshiping, and this is a pretty diverse group of people in this church. And so you can see uh, about the region of Antioch here, where that town is. Verse 2, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, it says in verse 3, then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So they ordained, this church ordained and sent off this missionary group with an assignment. Okay, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And Seleucia is, is pretty much the, the nearest port uh, right there. So they, they head down, they walk down to the port city. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. That's the island off the coast. You can see this map here. Uh, so you can see this island off the coast. And they arrive, in verse 5 it says, Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. And so they arrive on the island of Cy Cyprus. Um, they first stop in Salamis. This is the port, and it says in verse 6, When they had traveled the whole island, so they're walking through the island, 
as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So, you have this individual, the word, the name Bar-Jesus just means son of Jesus. Now, it says this, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. And so, this Bar-Jesus character is a Jewish false prophet. Uh, he is sort of the right-hand man, the advisor, uh, alongside the proconsul. The proconsul is the appointed Roman governor of this region. This was Roman territory. And so, this governor's name was Sergius Paulus. Paulus, Paulus is the same Greek uh, name as Paul, the apostle, and so they have the same name. Uh, so there's this man here who is uh, hearing about Barnabas and Saul, who are there now on the island, and they're proclaiming a message. And the Roman governor calls Saul and Barnabas to come and 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 uh, share their message with him. Now, you'll see the phrasing that Saul and Barnabas, this is, Saul is actually Paul the Apostle. So, uh, Saul would be his Hebrew name. And, uh, but, and early on in this account, you'll read about Saul, but at a certain point, you'll hear his Greek name will be used, Paul. So, come to verse 8. But, Elimas, this is the Bar-Jesus character, the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So he's trying to block something here. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elimas and said, You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You son of the devil and enemy of all that is right, won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is with you, or is against you. You are going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. And immediately... A mist and darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then, when he saw what happened, the proconsul, this is the governor of the island, the proconsul believed. Wow. Because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Such an interesting first stop. Cyprus is actually where Barnabas was born. Uh, this was actually Barnabas' hometown, so he's already known there. He already had some relationships right there in in Cyprus. There's clearly a Jewish influence already there. Uh, but he and Paul are bringing this message about Jesus. God's Messiah has come. He's come to the earth. He died. He was buried. And he rose. And this was news to the island. So Cyprus itself, just to give you some context, Cyprus is a it's a tiny island. It's a tiny uh, country. It's, it's geographically small. It's larger than the state of Delaware, but smaller than the state of Connecticut. And you probably know those are tiny states. That's our 48th and 49th states as far as size. The, the 48th and 49th smallest states. So uh, you know, of, of our U.S. states, these are tiny, tiny um, states. And so Cyprus is a fairly small island. And it's currently its own country, part of the European Union. A little over a million people live there. Uh, it's just below the country of Turkey on the map. Um, so you've got Cyprus in the Mediterranean right there. Right above it is Turkey, uh, just to sort of give you a reference point. Now, I want to I help you understand a little bit of, about the religions in those regions. So here's a chart currently showing the religions in Turkey. The top religion in Turkey, uh, You just to give you a reference point, you have 80 million Muslims to about 380,000 Christians in Turkey currently. 
Now, I have friends uh, that serve as Christian missionaries in Turkey, spreading the message of Jesus in Turkey. Uh, they are clearly the small minority in the country of Turkey. So, consider Turkey's religious breakdown. And then, now I want you to look at this chart from Cyprus. The top religion in Cyprus, which, again, the island just below Turkey, right there in the middle of the Mediterranean, about 67% of the population identifies themselves as Christians, mostly as members of the Greek Orthodox Church. And this history and the impact of Christianity on the island of Cyprus is still a major part of that country. How do you explain that? How, after all of these years, do you still have this impact? If you were to go today to Cyprus on a tour, not only would you see all of these different beautiful churches, like take a look at some of these churches. There's a very, very old church built into the rocks in an area called Protaras. It's a much older church, okay, but it, you could see this hidden cave church. Or here's a, a beautiful Cyprus church. Again, a Christian church there on the island. Here's another one, a modern Christian church in Cyprus. Now, if you were to travel there, you'd undoubtedly experience and learn about this rich Christian history. This is actually known as the Tomb of the Kings. These caves were, were carved out 400 years before the first century. Uh, but this site was where the earliest Christians would often meet for worship, for singing, for encouragement, for instruction, and even just to seek refuge uh, because of the early persecution that some of them faced. And this Christian heritage and tradition can be traced right back here to Acts 13. And so Acts 13, verse 6. Let's look a little more carefully at the passage. Verse 6. When they had traveled the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet, named Bar-Jesus. Now this character, Bar-Jesus, he's the spiritual advisor to the local governor. Like I mentioned, he, he, he advises Sergius Paulus there. In verse 7 it reads, He, the sorcerer, was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. So the governor, uh, he wanted to hear more about the message that Saul, a.k.a. Paul, and Barnabas had brought with them and were spreading around the island. This is significant. The governor, is it says he's an intelligent man. He, he already has an advisor near him, a, a Jewish false prophet. But still, he, he's an intelligent man. He wants to know what this message is all about. Now, the local governing official in any region is an important figure. Uh, leaders have influence. Leaders set the direction for a nation. They, uh, they, they set the direction for a region or even a city or a town. Uh, this being Roman territory, uh, you know, there's, there's Romans there in Cyprus, there's Jews there in Cyprus, there's Cypriots there, those that were native to the island, but this particular sorcerer uh, he attempts to block God's plan to move the message of Christ into the island. And so what he does is he stands in opposition. Now come to verse 8. It says, but Elimas, the sorcerer, that is, that's the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here we see the power of darkness coming up against the power of light. At the very highest level, God and Satan are, are at odds here in this earthly setting, verse 9, it says, but, but Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, meaning God directed Paul to this action right here. It says he stared straight at Elimas, and he said, you are full 
of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You're a son of the devil and an enemy of all that is right. Essentially, Paul's saying, though your name is son of Jesus, which the Hebrew for Yeshua, where we come up with Jesus, the Hebrew word Yeshua means the Lord saves. So, though your name is son of Jesus, you aren't that. Instead, Paul says, you are a son of the devil. And as you can see, he brings a strong rebuke. And he says, won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. Now think about what Paul is also communicating to this governor who's watching this whole exchange back and forth. Now, the governor is distinguishing this man, Elimos, and his messages and his input from the message that, that Paul and Barnabas are bringing. Then Paul says, you're going to, to the sorcerer, you're going to be blind, you're not going to see the sun for a time, and immediately it says, a mist and a darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So just as Paul commands would happen, it actually occurs, and this, this sorcerer, this man is immediately weakened, and he comes under God's immediate judgment. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen the, the film The Lord of the Rings, uh, but I can't help but believe that this section of, of that film I'm going to show you was based off of this passage. So take a look at a very intense scene from The Lord of the Rings in the Two Towers, and what you have is a a man named Gandalf, he's a, uh, he's a wizard who, um, who is basically fighting for all things that are right and good. And they're fighting against a very dark army and a very dark enemy. And it's a very intense scene where Gandalf the wizard and his, um, his men, this fellowship uh, of men, come into a castle uh, where the king has been taken over um, spiritually through a dark, through the influence and input of a dark advisor. So take a look at this scene from Lord of the Rings, and then we'll we'll talk more about this passage. My lord, Gandalf the Grey is coming. Courtesy of your hall is somewhat lessened of late. Theoden King. He's not welcome. Why should I welcome you, Gandalf Stormcrow? A just question, my liege. Late is the hour in which this conjurer chooses to appear. Last spell I name it. Ill news is an ill guest. Be silent. Give your full tongue behind your teeth. I have not passed through hard and death to bandy crooked words with a witless worm. Stop. I told you to take a wizard. Stop. Theoden. Son of Thinger. Too long to sat in the shadows. <laughs> I would stay still if I were you. Hearken to me. I release you from the spell. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha. 
power here, Gandalf the Grey. <laughs> I will draw you, Saruman, as poison is drawn from a wound. Wait. If I go, Theoden dies. You did not kill me. You will not kill him. Rohan. Breathe the free air again, my friend. Fingers would remember their own strength better if they grasped your sword. That's a really intense scene. And in a very similar way, though, in that scene, you, you could see the power that this dark character, his name is Wormtongue, had as he was even channeling power from another evil character named Saruman, who had a spell on this king, Theoden. Now, you, you can see this whole movie that's called The Two Towers from the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but there is such striking parallels to this scene in Cyprus. But here's the whole question I wanted to arrive at. What would be the difference if Christianity never came to Cyprus? I mean, think about that. We're talking about the impact of Christianity in our world. And really, we're asking the question, is the world better off or worse off because of Christianity? So looking at this story from Acts 13 about the island of Cyprus, what would be the difference if Christianity never came to Cyprus? It's Likely, those qualities that Paul used to describe Elimas when he rebuked that sorcerer, that could have taken deeper and deeper root 
on that island and spread through the people of that island. So let's just break down the spiritual advisor to the Cyprian governor. He was full of all kinds of deceit, Paul says, and trickery. So deceit is a word in the Greek. It just means snares, skilled in deception. And this advisor was full of all kinds of snares, all kinds of, of, of deceit and trickery. The Greek word for trickery, this is the only time you'll see this Greek word showing up in the New Testament. And essentially means wickedness. It means ruthless, reckless living without any moral hesitation. So this character, Elimos, full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Well, how would you like the governor of, of our state or our country or, you know, the mayor of our city being advised by deceitful and, you know, people full of trickery. I mean, this would be a cause for concern, I believe. <laughs> Look at how he's described this next point Paul makes. You're an enemy of all that is right, he tells him. So this character, he would twist God's truth. What's right, he would call wrong. This man was twisting reality to oppose God on all levels. Also, he was perverting the path to the Lord, meaning this dangerous character, no doubt, was influencing the direction of that island. And if Paul and Barnabas had never landed there, preached there, and then confronted this character, we have absolutely no idea what type of island this might have become. But maybe watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and you'll get a better feel for countries overrun by godlessness. The result there in Cyprus was this, verse 12. Then, when he saw what had happened, what happened, the proconsul believed, the governor of this island believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Sometimes the gospel makes message just sort of makes an impact from the bottom and sort of works its way up, grassroots movements moving through the culture and through society, and then eventually it works its way up to the leader, uh, but also. This would not be the first time that the gospel impacted a culture by impacting a leader who came to Christ and then used their influence to bring a different quality of life to a country, to a state, or to a city. And so, I want us to wrestle with that, but on an even larger level. What's the difference Christianity has made in, in pushing back the prevailing darkness in our world? And as we give some examples, I'm going to sort of just quickly highlight some ways that God has used leaders to bring light to the nations. So first, consider the Roman Empire. It, there was a major shift because of Christianity from persecution to protection, which the prevailing darkness for Christians was persecution and the, and the, uh, the, the retrieving and the, the stealing of property of Christians. But Christianity eventually brought change to the Roman Empire. But there were early emperors like Nero, for example, who brought so much darkness. I mean, we have these examples in history of, of the darkness of, of, of a godless society who has really, in the Roman Empire, no reference to morality or the value of human life. And so you see, um, you know, Christians the history is that Christians would be persecuted, even fed to the lions for sport, for entertainment, for the Romans. Well, there was a major shift. A man named Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, in the 4th century, he brought the gospel into the Roman Empire. This Christianity was already gaining so much influence in the, in the empire 
because of the movement spreading. Uh, people would adopt, for example, Christians would adopt discarded female babies. Eventually, young men would become Christians because they were interested in adopting Christian girls. And by valuing life, this sort of bottom-up movement actually transformed and reached um, at the highest levels, transformed the biggest superpower to that at that, that point in history. And, and some say Emperor Constantine made Christianity the state religion because he was only recognizing officially the transformation that had already begun to take root throughout the empire. But Constantine, either way, he issued the Edict of Milan in 313, which gave Christians freedom of worship and really even directed the governors to return property. And so they restored property that had been seized from Christians. So that's an example of the difference that Christianity made in the early Roman Empire. Now, I like to give just a few more examples of the difference Christianity has made around the world. Again, let's just highlight the shift from darkness to light. Uh, these examples in no way are meant to pick on any one country or group, but simply to show there's an impact of the Christian movement as principles drawn from the Bible begin to take root and change culture. So in England, we can see and trace a shift from unlimited governing power to just government. An example of this is the Magna Carta. Uh, the word just means the Great Charter. Signed in 1215 by King John of England and, and rebel barons, this document is often credited as democracy's sort of cornerstone. This was the first document to put in writing the principles that, that the king and the government was not above the law. This is a Christian idea based on the belief that though people have different roles to play in society, everybody is equal before God. Now, this is a stark contrast to ancient governments where where kings were seen as deities who you couldn't question them as deities. And, and the kings had the highest value. And so this just brought um, order. And it, it allowed for uh, a civilization to flourish. Now, if nothing else, the Magna Carta served as a, as a reminder that however powerful someone may be, they're not above the law. Side note on the Magna Carta and, and English common law, this is where we get the notion of a man's home is his, is his castle. You've probably heard that phrase before. That idea originated that within from this document that when we're within our own homes, we're actually the sovereigns. It essentially makes the home the most basic unit of government. Another example from England is Alfred the Great. Alfred, he set up public schools, he reformed the military, and revised and expanded the law code. Uh, later historians commented on Alfred's piety, his justice, his noble vision of a better future for his people. Uh, if you know the history, the Vikings had been attacking England for over a century. And the leader of one of the Viking invasions uh, during Alfred's rule was a man named Guthrum, who he became a Christian. He was baptized, and the Vikings signed a peace treaty with the English, and then they went on to, to found a partly Christian state outside of England. Now, another way of stating this is that the Viking invasion died at the cross. You see, Christ Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection impacted, has impacted the world. Resurrection power has changed our world. Another example of the darkness being pushed back occurred in India. Uh, from ritualistic sacrifice of widows to the preservation of life. In the 1800s and even before that, uh, widows in India would be thrown 
or voluntarily jump onto the burning fire of their dead husband's body. Uh, this was a practice known as sati. And when 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 the British took over, they eventually outlawed this practice. Whether voluntary or involuntary, this was a long-standing tradition that ended when the British took power. And it just raised the value of human life. Eventually, the Indian government uh, outlawed this funeral practice as well, as well. So that's just another example of light breaking through, uh, changing things for the better for society. And the light is drawn from the principles of Scripture. Now, let's shift. In the UK, in the United Kingdom, really, the prevailing darkness was slavery to freedom. And so one character you can look into this yourself, William Wilberforce, a committed Christian, a member of the British Parliament, fought for 20 years to see that the British slave trade was abolished. And three days before Wilberforce's death, he heard that the act was assured to pass through Parliament to end slavery in England. And he was the leader of the movement which abolished the slave trade. Now in our country, in the United States, uh, we, I would say, a nation with a biblical foundation. Uh, the, the, you know, there wasn't this transformation uh, because of the gospel. No, the uh, the colonists came and brought the gospel with them, the gospel message with them. And it, so, as you see in our documents, in our earliest documents, it's you know the the biblical principles are woven into the fabric of our country, and that has rippled through our nation for good. Uh, for example, the Declaration of Independence. You see this rippled blessing has really come through this document. Now, we're not perfect as a country, but this document can be traced in in many ways back to the effect of the resurrection power that changes lives and shapes perspective. Uh, from, From the declaration, we see the 13 colonies declaring this. One of the key phrases that you're probably familiar with, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now these, again, these are drawn from biblical principles. John Adams, one of the signers, said this. He said, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. What he's saying is, this form of government, it stands on and only works within a society who has a moral framework, a religious framework, a foundation that has been established. There's a God uh, and we're drawing from his principles as they drafted that document. Now, uh, what that does is, is it gives us a reference point. The Bible gives us a reference point uh, to how we see life. Now, many of our presidents have been men of faith. We don't have time to trace all the examples, but uh, you can look up and study for yourself Lincoln's second inaugural address right in the middle of the, uh, near the end of the Civil War. You'll have to read it for yourself, but you can see how our 16th president was just wrestling through how do I lead a divided country to do what would please God, to do what is pleasing and right before the Lord? But overall, the movement of Christianity, it just continues to envelop the whole world as God works in one heart at a time to bring light to whole regions, whether through the leader or through ordinary people. God's light is pushing back the prevailing darkness. Now, As we wrap up, here's some specific next steps. First is this. Pray for those who lead nations. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, gives us some instructions on our responsibility as, if you're a Christ follower, 
to pray. So look at 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 through 4. First of all, Paul writes to one of the leaders named Timothy, Then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul's saying, pray for those in authority. Lift them up. Consider consider this as a part of your regular routine in life. Because what could God do through capturing the heart of one leader? Well, some of the stories we've referenced, including the story in Acts 13 about the, the uh, gospel coming to Cyprus, is a great example of what God can do as he captures the heart of a leader. That can ripple through a society. Another next step, praise God for his sovereign direction to advance the cause of Christ to the ends of the earth. God is moving his message from people, from one heart to the next, life to life, and and even to impact regions and to the ends of the earth. God is in charge of this. He's moving. Third thing is consider with whom I, I, I might boldly share the gospel with. Ask yourself that question. Pray through that question. Who could I share this message of Jesus with? Who knows? Who knows what kind of influence God may give that person that you share with in the future? You just don't know what what God has in store to move the message forward. I want to invite you to come back online next week. We're going to be looking at the topic of medicine, uh, relief aid, world compassion, and see how the Christian movement has made a significant. This is one of the most undeniable impacts of the Christian movement right there. Again and again, we can find Christians who give real help to those hurting and in trouble and people that are willing even to pay a price, to pay a cost to their own health and well-being to serve others. Actually, 9 out of 10 of the best hospitals today were started by compassionate people who had Christian roots. And so I want to invite you to come back online and and check that out next week. If you'd like to come out live, we would love to see you live at the Orange Cherish Community Center at, at either 9 in the morning or 1030 on Sundays. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our time looking in the Bible together. Thank you for an opportunity to see how the message of Jesus and his resurrection and his payment for sin impacted a leader on the island of Cyprus. Father, we have no idea who around us you may assign to lead uh, our city, our region, our state. Father, we have no idea who who you may... Uh, lead and direct uh, to to serve in office, we have no idea. And so I pray, Lord, that we would uh, use courage and be bold, Lord, in our frequent sharing of your message. For those that are exploring this and trying to understand what difference Christianity is make, Lord, I pray that you would continue to lead them uh, to dig and to look into both what the Bible has to say and to see the impact of, of the Christian movement in our world. So we pray, God, that pray for an openness, We pray for uh, continuing steps to be made towards you for those that are seeking. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at occathome.com to learn more about how to connect with us. And join us again next week for another Orange Crest Community Church podcast. Have a great day.